Episode 7 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 2.1, Armed Conflict in the Small Plates of Nephi. Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this episode, we will begin our discussion of armed conflict in the Book of Mormon record itself, with what happens in the first six books, 1st Nephi, 2nd Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jerem, and Omni, or what we call the small plates of Nephi. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Unlike many of the other names this book discusses, Nephi was not a military man. As identified in the previous episodes, he, like all of us, was a product of his experiences, study, and observations. This part discusses the beginning of the Nephite and Lamanite military traditions distinct from their Near Eastern counterparts. The divergence from the fundamental structure of Near Eastern armies is clear as it appears that the Nephites begin the process of warfare from very close to square one. The Nephite and Lamanite traditions of armed conflict grow in an environment of nearly complete recorded obscurity. The sources in the Book of Mormon provide very little illumination of the formative experiences and none of the detail discussed in the books of Mosiah, Alma, Helaman, Third Nephi, or Mormon. As Nephi states in the following quote from 1 Nephi chapter 19 verse 4, Wherefore I, Nephi, did make a record upon the other plates, which gives an account, or which gives a greater account, of the wars and contentions and destructions of my people. And this I have done, and commanded my people what they should do after I was gone, and that these plates should be handed down from one generation to another, or from one prophet to another, until further commandments of the Lord." The small plates of Nephi included in the Book of Mormon is not a record of their wars and their political history. This part of our podcast, which consists of four episodes, tries to provide some illumination on that which is not present in the record, as I will discuss armed conflict traditions from Nephi through Mosiah 1. We will also set the stage for future discussions by elaborating on who was the Prophet Mormon and what was his background such that the later portions of the Book of Mormon appear to differ so remarkably from the first six books. Additionally, we will talk about Antichrists and their role in the Book of Mormon both as a part of conflict and as a part of the overall metaphor that Mormon is trying to express. Finally, the part concludes by an explanation of some general observations that will play a critical role in future episodes and in shaping the discussion and framework upon which all of the future discussions will be based. Now, let us begin with armed conflict in the small plates of Nephi. Normally, I will not provide a retelling of the historical events in the Book of Mormon, as that will take too long, and listeners can always simply listen to an electronic version of the Book of Mormon to understand what is happening. However, in this episode, we are covering the events of six books that make up the small plates of Nephi. I will list the main events that pertain to the armed conflict portions of the small plates. Lehi and his family are commanded by God to leave Jerusalem. They travel down to the Red Sea and then three days further into the wilderness. Lehi is commanded to get the brass plates, or the plates of brass, from Laban, who is back at Jerusalem. Lehi sends his four sons who return to the city. They send in Laman to negotiate. Laman is then rejected and threatened. They seek to purchase the plates with the family wealth, and then all of the sons are threatened, hunted, and driven from the city, and their family wealth is taken. Laman and Lemuel, the older sons, are mad at Nephi, as it was his idea to use the family wealth, which is now lost. The older sons beat the younger sons. 
They are stopped by an angel, commanded to return to the city, and promised the guidance of the Lord in obtaining the plates. They return to the city. Nephi enters the city alone, finds Laban unconscious, kills Laban as directed by God, and obtains the plates. The sons return to the tent of their father. The sons are sent back to Jerusalem again to convince another family to join them. This family, the family of Ishmael, has women of suitable ages to be wives for the sons. The family agrees to go with the sons. The older men seek to kill Nephi on the journey back to the tent of Lehi. Nephi escapes the ropes that bind him. The families journey for eight years to a place called Bountiful, where they build a ship and then sail to the promised land. Along the journey, Nephi breaks a metal-constructed bow. The families suffer deprivations and struggle with faith. At Bountiful, the older brothers threaten to and then attempt to kill Nephi. He is protected by the power of God. On the sea journey, the families celebrate wickedly are called to repentance by Nephi, and then Nephi is again attacked and bound and only released after a storm threatens to destroy the ship. Once at the promised land, Lehi dies and Nephi chastises his older brethren for wickedness, which again causes his life to be threatened. Nephi separates from his older brethren and he takes with him all those who, quote, believed in the warnings and revelations of God, close quote, we will discuss who went with whom in a couple of episodes, but roughly the division was about equal. Nephi also takes with him the compass or ball called the Leohona, which was used to guide the families as they traveled from the camp by the Red Sea to the Promised Land. He also took the brass plates and the sword and armor of Laban. As we will discuss, these were the three most significant symbols of Lehi's divine call and could be considered as birthright possessions. Nephi travels for the space of many days away from the land of first inheritance. After the group separated, they are referred to as Lamanites and Nephites. The Lamanites attack the Nephites on numerous occasions during Nephi's life and beyond. I previously discussed a continuum or spectrum of conflict in episode 3, which is 1.2, Military Introduction. I believe that in the battles and wars, as they are called in the small plates, that occur after the two groups separate, there is an ever-increasing movement along the spectrum from raids for theft to raids for pillage to narrow conquest to general conquest and finally to genocidal conquest. By the end of the small plates of Nephi, we will see the near total destruction of the first Nephite state and a group of people who will be led away as an escape by a man named Mosiah, the first of that name in the record. As I will express later in this episode, these initial battles or wars were really just raids but they definitely progressed as familial ties became more and more distant. That is the summary of the events. Now, I want to get to the commentary. One of the first conflicts that a reader of the Book of Mormon witnesses is that between brothers in 1 Nephi chapter 3, verse 28. I recognize that previous to this event was the threat of Laban to kill Laman, in 1 Nephi chapter 3, verse 13, and Laban's later threat to kill all of the sons of Lehi in 1 Nephi chapter 3, verse 25. These events fit within the spectrum of armed conflict, as explained in the second episode, back to beating up on the younger brothers. The two older sons of Lehi beat their two younger brothers with a rod. There is nothing stunning from a military perspective about this act. Brother beating brother is in chapter 4 of the book of Genesis. A rod, which could also be called a stick, staff, or club, are among the earliest weapons used by man and commonly used by primates as weapons or tools. What makes this story so important within the scope of the Book of Mormon is that it sets the tone for armed conflict throughout the account. Whether in the book of Ether, 
or the rest of the Book of Mormon, the conflicts are those of brothers, brotherly tribes, brotherly kingdoms, and brotherly nations against one another. Regardless of the genetic makeup of the participants in later conflicts, the struggles are typically placed within this intra-family context. By the time Nephi makes this record, as we have the small plates, he has already seen in vision, as recorded in 1 Nephi chapter 12, verse 19, that the seed of his brothers would eventually overpower his seed. I think that this is among the reasons that Nephi records much of this intra-family conflict, to paint the picture of the seeds of the strife that continue throughout the record. Nephi records his beating, the binding, and the threats against his life. He shows the progression of his brothers along the spectrum of armed conflict until we eventually get to the threats of death to all of the followers of the prophet which caused Nephi to flee with all those who would follow him. From that point, the story and escalation of conflict continued along the spectrum to greater levels of violence and destruction. Before continuing on this progressive nature of early Nephite and Lamanite conflict, it is important to look at the formative experience of Nephi as a man of conflict. It is possible that the beating by his brothers played an important role in shaping his attitude and perspective of conflict, but it is likely that he, being the youngest of four boys in a tribal culture and a challenging environment, had been beaten before. A brief personal observation is that modern Middle Eastern militaries, coming from tribal-based societies, still use the rod of authority as a major part of respect and discipline. The senior officer or non-commissioned officer typically carries a rod that is about a half meter in length, with which he may administer immediate and typically brief strikes to correct errant behavior. Nephi probably endured corporal punishment corrections administered by his older brothers before, though maybe not as severe. Despite perceptions of severity, Nephi did not comment on severity in this instance. I quote from 1 Nephi chapter 3, verse 28, And it came to pass that Laman was angry with me, and also with my father, and also was Lemuel, for he hearkened unto the words of Laman. Wherefore Laman and Lemuel did speak many hard words unto us, their younger brothers, and they did smite us even with a rod. Close quote. Rather than this beating, Nephi's formative experience was that of slaying Laban, which comes soon after the quote just read. Nephi is saved from the beating by the appearance of an angel who commands the brothers to stop and the men to return to Jerusalem where the Lord will guide them. Nephi boldly follows the instruction without the accompaniment of his brothers. He enters the city and is guided by the Spirit is led to the form of a man in the street who happens to be the aforementioned Laban, a man who possesses a scriptural record similar to the Hebrew Bible up to the book of Jeremiah. It is this record that the young men have been sent back to Jerusalem from the wilderness camp of Lehi to retrieve. God commands Nephi to kill Laban. Here it was that the young man, who had recently made a profound declaration of faith in his God, as recorded in 1 Nephi chapter 3, verse 7, now questions God and the instructions received from him. Nephi needs not just a command as was necessary to return to Jerusalem, to which he would comply by giving away all of the family's worldly wealth. Here he needs convincing of the right and justice of the action. It is here that Nephi has to perform not a battlefield killing, but a divinely appointed execution. Executions are among the most challenging psychological traumas for battlefield soldiers. It is for this reason that most execution squads consisted of multiple members. That way, no one person could be certain that he was the one responsible for coldly ending another human being's life. In the Mosaic Code, it is probable 
that one of the reasons for stoning as a form of execution was for similar individual psychological protections. It is a group act, and therefore no single individual bears full responsibility for the death. For those interested in understanding the psychological phenomena surrounding getting soldiers to kill on the battlefield, I highly recommend Dave Grossman's very readable and fascinating book, On Killing, The Psychological Cost of Learning to Kill in War and Society. Unlike the group stonings or executions, where any one person might be able to claim that he was not responsible for the death of the accused and convicted, Nephi knows. There is no question about it. Nephi describes the act in antiseptic brevity. It happened, and he moved on. He records it for a spiritual lesson, not for militarily useful detail. And I quote from 1 Nephi chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Therefore I did obey the voice of the Spirit, and took Laban by the hair of the head, and I smote off his head with his own sword. And after I had smitten off his head with his own sword, I took the garments of Laban, and put them upon mine own body, yea, even every whit, and I did gird on his armor about my loins. Close quote. Nephi was brought face to face with the consequences of armed conflict. He could never hide behind anonymity, and this certainly shaped his view and his reticence to take life. He not only took a life, but he watched the life leave the body as he took the clothes, weapon, and armor, and then placed them on his own body. It is not critical here to go too far into the psychological aspects of this execution for Nephi. His world was not the world of the 21st century. As described in episode 4 of our podcast, Nephi lived in a world of violence and violent death. He possibly witnessed the earlier sack of Jerusalem of 598 to 597 BC, or some of its attendant consequences. He certainly grew up in a world where robbers, raiding, and death were considered a part of life. His reaction and psychological difficulties were certain to be different from a person doing the same act today. It was a different world. I want to move from personal experience to collective leadership. We have in the record no examples of Nephi as a leader of men in armed conflict. We do have several examples of his general leadership style and the effects and impacts of that style on the thoughts and actions of others. We are told that Nephi was a military leader, and I quote from Jacob chapter 1 verse 10, The people having loved Nephi exceedingly, he having been a great protector for them, having wielded the sword of Laban in their defense, and having labored in all his days for their welfare. Close quote. His first moment of communal leadership comes in the face of his brother's defeatist attitudes about retrieving the brass plates from Laban, as expressed in 1 Nephi chapter 3 verses 15 to 21. Here he begins a pattern that he continues when faced with similar challenges later on in their journey to the promised land, like building a ship, as is given in 1 Nephi chapter 17. That is, he reminds others of the importance of following the commands of God. In later cases, specifically the building of the ship, he reminds those who oppose him of the power of God, as demonstrated in various stories contained in our modern scriptures and his brass plates, and I refer you to 1 Nephi chapter 17, verses 23 to 47. We see this pattern followed later in the Book of Mormon record, by Moroni, Moronihah, Helaman, Gidgadoni, and others. This is clearly a pattern of importance, reminders of the will and mind of God, and the power of God as demonstrated in commonly accepted true stories. Nephi places a great deal of emphasis on persuasion and getting others to accept the promptings and guidance of God through the Holy Ghost. This does not always work, it seemed to completely fail after the death of Lehi, and this forced Nephi to depart and take those sacred emblems and scriptures with him. 
This departure with the items that clearly marked birthright and position, the Leahona, the brass plates, and the armor and sword of Laban, is probably what sparks the contest of wills between the two family groups formed as a result of the separation. It would require a significant wounding of pride to justify a movement of several days to conduct a raid on the Nephite settlement. Something created this deep-seated hatred and need for vengeance in the mind of Laman, his associates, and their posterity. Jacob gives us some insight into Nephi as a leader when he makes the comments found in the previous quote. His service to the people and his efforts in their defense and their welfare created a bond between leader and follower that provided all of the love mentioned. We will see this view of successful leadership, the suffering servant, throughout Mormon's depictions of honorable and qualified leaders of the Nephites and Lamanites. The sword of Laban is the one sword that we can be relatively certain of its general appearance. All other swords and scimitars are only determined through plausible conceptualization. A sword is a weapon designed primarily to thrust or slash an opponent and do bodily harm through piercing or cutting flesh, bones, and vital organs. The intent of military weapons is to kill or seriously disable the opponent. In many instances in Scripture, both in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, sword is used metaphorically, and therefore there is no desire here to get involved in a debate about what a Nephite's sword looked like. Nephi says, and I quote from 2 Nephi chapter 5, verse 14, And I, Nephi, did take the sword of Laban, and after the manner of it did make many swords, lest by any means the people who were now called Lamanites should come upon us and destroy us. For I knew their hatred towards me and my children, and those who were called my people. Close quote. What we know is that the Nephite swords in this early period were, quote, after the manner, close quote, of Laban's sword. From this we can safely infer that there was a cutting edge, probably a thrusting point, and a handle or hilt. We are not again told what a sword looks like in the Book of Mormon. Neither Mormon nor any of the small plate authors finds it necessary to provide greater detail. From this lack of specificity in the record, the defining characteristics of a sword will be as stated, cutting edge, thrusting edge, which is possible, and handle. As far as other weapons are concerned, the record of the small plates gives several instances where various melee and missile weapons are named. The sons of Lehi at various times use bows and arrows, slings and stones to hunt for food while in the wilderness, as particularly expressed in 1 Nephi chapter 16 verses 14 to 15. Enos explains in Enos chapter 1 verse 20 that the Lamanites were skilled in, quote, the bow and in the scimitar and the axe, close quote. Here is the first mention of the scimitar, spelled C-I-M-E-T-E-R. Scimitar is one possible spelling of scimitar, which was a curved bladed sword whose primary purpose was slashing an opponent. In medieval and modern times, this weapon was adapted and used by cavalry and other mounted forces to allow for wide slashing arcs from horseback and at speed. Since the Book of Mormon makes no reference to mounted warfare, as will be emphasized in later episodes, it was almost certainly not used by mounted soldiers. In ancient times, curved bladed swords were common among foot soldiers in the Egyptian and several Mesopotamian armies. One reason for having such a weapon was that a slash was typically more debilitating to an opponent than a piercing wound. It is also important to note that slashing requires more room in a formation than does thrusting, and this would support an open formation rather than a tight or closed formation. For example, the Romans and the Greeks primarily used thrusting weapons, which allowed them to be as close together as they were. Piercing, or thrusting, became more necessary as armor became more formidable, 
and a slashing blow was not sufficient to penetrate the armor. In a world where, as we are told in Enos chapter 1, verse 20, the Lamanites were simply clothed with, quote, a short skin girdle about their loins and their heads shaven, close quote, slashing weapons would retain their effectiveness for centuries, hence the emphasis on them. Despite the existence of scimitars in ancient Near Eastern armies, it is unclear whether or not Nephi or the other members of his family brought such a weapon from the Near East. It is possible that this was a weapon native to the land of promise. It is Jerem who provides the greatest clarity on the variety of weapons among the Nephites when he lists the weapons they make. He also provides information about metalwork that could be construed to mean that the Nephite weapons were of metal. At best, it is unclear what was the construction of Book of Mormon weapons, and so it remains possible that they were made of metal or of an organic material. However, the account does provide a good list in helping us to understand the meaning of the phrase used by Zenith, Mormon, and Moroni, weapons of every kind. Jerem says in chapter 1, verse 8, and I quote, And we multiplied exceedingly, and spread upon the face of the land, and became exceedingly rich in gold, and in silver, and in precious things, and in fine workmanship of wood, in buildings, and in machinery, and also in iron, and copper, and brass, and steel, making all manner of tools of every kind to till the ground, and weapons of war, yea, the sharp-pointed arrow, and the quiver, and the dart, and the javelin, and all preparations for war." There is a lot in this verse to unpack. But first, here is a list of primarily missile weapons. Arrow, dart, javelin, which serve a variety of purposes and uses. The javelin is only mentioned here and in the Book of Alma, and will be discussed later in the actions of Tiancum. But in brief, it is a thrown spear which is used by melee soldiers to engage an opponent in between the range of the bow or sling and the sword. Quiver is a carrying device for arrows. The dart provides a more challenging problem. Dart is only mentioned twice in the Book of Mormon, in this instance and in 1 Nephi chapter 15 verse 24. One reference is conceptual, referring to the fiery darts of the adversary, and the other is practical, a real weapon used in armed conflict. In the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament, there are several words which are translated into the English word dart in the King James Version of the Bible. These words can also be translated into a variety of different melee and missile weapons, rod, club, sword, spear, javelin, arrow. In Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary, the word is explained with the following expressions. I quote, In Swedish, dart is a dagger. The word is from some verb signifying to throw or thrust. 1. A pointed missile weapon to be thrown by the hand, a short lance. 2. Any missile weapon that which pierces and wounds." Given the lone mention of this weapon, it is probable that it is another name for one of the other missile weapons already mentioned. Laban's armor is another issue. As stated in a previous episode, the armor of fighters in Judah was not dissimilar to that of the Assyrians. Laban was out on the night in question drinking. It is unlikely that he was wearing or carrying a large shield. The assumption that Laban was wearing Assyrian-like armor, combined with the fact that he was without a battlefield shield, leads to a supposition that he wore chest protection and a metal skirt, as Nephi states, and I quote from 1 Nephi chapter 4, verse 19, I did gird on his armor about my loins, close quote. This is more than placing a chest protector over his upper body. We are given very little description or mention of armor throughout the small plates. All we have is a vague comment about Lamanite girdle of skins. It is not until Mormon begins his abridgment that armor is again mentioned, and we will bring up that topic again then. The small plates of Nephi presents a limited picture of transformation of defensive warfare, 
from a conceptual form of fortifications to community and key infrastructure fortification. The conceptual is questionable, as Jacob's words can be construed as concrete defensive preparations or conceptual fortification of the spirit and person. I quote from Jacob chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Wherefore, the people of Nephi did fortify against them with their arms and with all their might, trusting in the God and rock of their salvation. Wherefore, they became as yet conquerors of their enemies. Close quote. Later, the meaning becomes clearer. Jerem, in his previously quoted verse on weapons used, preceded those comments with the defensive works begun. And I quote from Jerem chapter 1 verse 7, And it came to pass that they came many times against us, the Nephites, to battle. But our kings and our leaders were mighty men in the faith of the Lord, and they taught the people the ways of the Lord. Wherefore we withstood the Lamanites, and swept them away out of our lands, and began to fortify our cities, or whatsoever place of our inheritance. Close quote. Not only does he mention the fortification of cities, but of places of inheritance. It is unclear what this means, but fortifications, forts, fortify, are all words with a spectrum of meanings. A fortification can be any element that strengthens the defensive position. Forts can vary significantly within a region of the same period. I want to add a personal observation from travels throughout the Arabian Peninsula. I saw fortifications from the 16th to 18th centuries AD that had significant variants in defensive capability. Most of the forts were simple buildings with stone walls or, and a reinforced roof. They provided some opportunity to fire on opponents, but not any means to conduct offensive operations from the fort, like sally ports or supporting loopholes. I also noted several fortifications that were made by Portuguese traders who fashioned forts similar to those found in Europe. This was not an ethnic division, as Muslim and Arab soldiers had constructed well-crafted and complex fortifications in the Levant during the Crusader period, but rather a difference of threat experience. Most of the Arab tribes in the peninsula dealt primarily with other Bedouin tribes who did not possess advanced siege equipment and therefore fortifications did not require elaborate measures. In general, forts are typically constructed to defend against a specific threat. As Jerem and Jacob do not provide details of what type these fortifications are, the reader is left to speculate on the extent and manner of construction. I do want to note that later in the Book of Alma, we will get a really good instruction and look into the challenge and response dynamic that goes into fortification construction, as different elements of fortification will be added based off of lessons and experiences from battle. What we do know from Jerem is that the Nephites were not simply fortifying their cities but other locations as well. The fortifications are constructed to accomplish one of two strategy-based objectives. One is to make the attack of a given location more difficult and therefore make it easier for the Nephite inside or behind the fortification to deter or kill the attacker. The second is to inspire one of two decisions from the Lamanites. First, to avoid the location altogether and attack somewhere else, or second, to attack the fortification at a specific place. The comments on armed conflict after Nephi leads his followers away from his brothers in the existing record are given in small comments using words like wars, bloodshed, and contentions as expressed in 2 Nephi 5.34, Jerem 1.13, and Omni Chapter 1, verse 3, verse 10, verse 17, and verse 24. These comments do not give any details, but there is an obvious progression of conflict between these two, initially, family groups. With tribal conflict, as I previously stated, the emphasis is typically on making gains, slaves, livestock, resources, rather than on annihilation. 
The typical source of these gains is in the raid. As noted in the previous two episodes, the sons of Lehi would certainly have had interaction with the nomadic peoples of the Arabian Peninsula and gained some understanding of the lifestyle which revolved around raiding and defending against raids. Therefore, when Nephi says, quote, And it sufficeth me to say that forty years had passed away, and we had already had wars and contentions with our brethren, close quote, from Second Nephi chapter 5, verse 34, that he does not mean wars in the sense found in the book of Alma. A reader can only assume that here the Lamanites are conducting raids, probably intent on recovering whatever birthright items they believe Nephi stole. The use of the term raid should not cause one to think simply of a handful of bandits stealing livestock. A raid can be large in scale and have devastating effect, as will be seen in the case of the city of Ammonihah in Alma chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. That raid destroyed an entire city. The raiding in the small plates of Nephi, particularly that just referenced from 2 Nephi 5.34, was a necessity early on as the Lamanites would not be seeking to move their entire society to the land of the Nephites. Such a movement would require significant manpower and logistical effort. This was not likely within the first generation of occupation. Later, as the families grew or associations with indigenous tribes increased, such logistical efforts were not just possible, but did occur. Later, Jacob discusses the nature of conflict in terms of the failure of missionary efforts as expressed in Jacob chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. He described the conflict in terms of hatred and continual attempts to achieve Nephite destruction. The aim appears to be one of familial grudge and revenge, and not of military conquest or occupation. Enos makes similar comments in Enos chapter 1 verse 14 about failures of missionary attempts, but he adds that one objective of Lamanite attacks was to, quote, destroy our records and us, and also all the traditions of our fathers, close quote. Here is the first statement of objectives other than hatred. It is probable that whatever the original point of contention was, it had become altered over the succeeding century. Now, the Lamanites seek to remove the records, the symbol of Nephite usurpation of prominence and birthright. By the time of Jerem, we have a much more developed sense of conflict. I quote from Jerem chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. And it came to pass that they came many times against us, the Nephites, to battle. But our kings and our leaders were mighty men in the faith of the Lord, and they taught the people the ways of the Lord. Wherefore we withstood the Lamanites, and swept them away out of our lands, and began to fortify our cities, or whatsoever place of our inheritance. And we multiplied exceedingly, and spread upon the face of the land, and became exceedingly rich in gold, and in silver, and in precious things, and in fine workmanship of wood, in buildings, and in machinery, and also in iron, and in copper, and brass, and steel, making all manner of tools of every kind, to till the ground, and weapons of war, yea, the sharp-pointed arrow, and the quiver, and the dart, and the javelin, and all preparations for war. And thus, being prepared to meet the Lamanites, they did not prosper against us, but the word of the Lord was verified, which he spake unto our fathers, saying, That inasmuch as ye will keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. Jerem is writing between 399 and 361 BC, nearly 200 years after the separations of the two groups of brothers into two separate peoples. There is a clear distinction now between tribes and tribal confederations into the two groups commonly referred to as Lamanites and Nephites. Jerem tells us that the raids were now of a sufficiently altered objective that lands needed to be fortified. The Nephites were protecting populations and resources and not just key items of familial and religious culture. The trend of conflict escalation continues for the next hundred years until we are told in Omni chapter 1 verse 5 quote, 
the more wicked part of the Nephites were destroyed, close quote. The attacks continued for the next two generations until it came to a point of near annihilation. Mosiah 1 was warned and he fled with all those who would follow him. This occurred at around 220 BC, more than 350 years since the separation of the families. It is inferred in the record that the Nephite kingdom that remained in the land of Nephi was completely destroyed, as we will see in later episodes, such that when Zenith returned to the land of Nephi about 20 years later, there is no mention of Nephites in the land. The Mulekites, the people living in the land of Zarahemla, when Mosiah I arrived, have also had, quote, many wars and serious contentions, and had fallen by the sword from time to time, close quote, as we are told in Omni chapter 1, verse 17. The internal fighting among the Mulekites and the external pressure on the Nephite refugees allowed the two cultures to merge under a single ruler. The small plates contain a progression of armed conflict from relatively small-scale raids focused on limited objectives to larger and larger actions over the generations until finally they result in the expulsion of one culture from a geographic area and the movement of the conquering culture into the conquered territory. Part 3 of this podcast explains in some depth the events and conflict of this period and people that I call Xenophytes. We will also see the military and political consolidation of the Lamanites in the land of Nephi and their subsequent military adventurism and the renewal of the cycle, again beginning with raids and progressing toward conquest. The Book of Mormon provides scant evidence of major tactical innovations. Readers are not informed in the small plates of Nephi about how the Lamanites and Nephites fought. This is not the purpose of this portion of the record so it is expected. The reader is provided with the previously mentioned nuggets of technical developments, the addition of new weapons to the arsenals of the two competing parties, scimitars, darts, and axes, and the introduction of defensive works and fortifications. We understand that use of leather girdles seems to be a part of the clothing used for conflict, and that the Lamanites are distinguished in conflict from the Nephites by their shaven heads. Despite the paucity of information, it is among these early accounts that the seeds of the major innovations of the Xenophyte period are sown. Clearly, there is a great deal of learning and development of tactics that occurs in these early raids and defenses upon which the later innovators, about whom the record provides greater detail, built. This entire spectrum of conflict progresses from an internal family quarrel the very first instance is one of intra-family conflict, Nephi and Sam being beaten with a rod. The threats, intimidation, and attempts of murder grow as the division of interpretation of God's will also grows. Upon the separation of the families, something else occurs that takes us from a simple issue of frustration over the role of a junior sibling and anger over personal humiliation to one of generational discord and struggle to destroy records and cultures. It requires force of numbers and logistical support to be able to move a society and physically supplant another. This is made clear as the earlier battles seem focused on destruction rather than conquest. Later, the use of defensive works implies that the goal has changed to conquest and cultural replacement. The necessity of generations to pass before this transition can occur is clear evidence of the transition in goal. The Lamanites need enough people to be able to occupy the new land and maintain the consistent and nearly constant pressure necessary to remove an entire society. Why is armed conflict and war discussed in such a limited fashion in these plates? Nephi provides the answer to this question himself when he explains the two different sets of records that he is commanded to make and keep. I have previously quoted from 1 Nephi chapter 19 verse 4. I now would like to quote verses 5 and 6. And an account of my making these plates shall be given hereafter. 
And then, behold, I proceed according to that which I have spoken, and this I do, that the more sacred things may be kept for the knowledge of my people. Nevertheless, I do not write anything upon these plates, save it be that I think it be sacred. And now, if I do err, even did they err of old. Not that I would excuse myself because of other men, but because of the weakness which is in me. According to the flesh, I would excuse myself. Close quote. We have a spiritual record in the small plates. The fact that armed conflict is mentioned at all indicates the importance it plays as the crucible of the cultures and its potential value for each of us. The Nephites need to be made to turn to God and understand his supreme role in their salvation. For this reason, the writers of the small plates include such comments in two cases, from Jacob chapter 7 verse 24 and Enos chapter 1 verse 14, the conflicts are mentioned in direct association with attempts at spiritual reclamation. Jerem also connects us to what I have previously, in episode 2, called Mormon's metaphor. Mormon's three points of emphasis are preparation, covenants, and unity. Obedience tends to connect to covenants, as those are the things to which we owe obedience. In reading Jerem, in particular, there are a couple of connections to Mormon's metaphor. The book Saints, the Story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days, Volume 1, The Standard of Truth, 1815-1846, there is a fantastic discussion of the translation of the Book of Mormon. In that story, we learn about how the first part of the record was translated, the pages taken by Martin Harris to show his wife and prove that he wasn't being made a fool, and then those pages were lost. When the translation continued, it did so from the book of Mosiah forward. It is only after the full translation ended with the book of Moroni that Joseph Smith found that the last plates were this collection of books that we call the small plates of Nephi. Along with them came a short connection called the Words of Mormon, where Mormon expresses these plates that he found after his abridgment was complete and that he liked them and felt to put them with the other plates at the end of the record. I share this bit for two reasons. One, the existence of the small plates of Nephi, as we have them, solves for the lost manuscript, which was never retranslated. A miraculous answer to a problem of obedience. Second, Mormon liked these plates because, I think, they too tell the story that fits his overall metaphor. Specifically, Jerem tells us in verse 7 of his book that because the Nephite kings were mighty men in the faith of the Lord, and they taught the people the ways of the Lord, wherefore we swept the Lamanites out of our lands. As a paraphrase, Jerem gives us a cause and effect, or an if-then statement here. He does so again in verse 9 when he says, quote, And thus being prepared to meet the Lamanites, they did not prosper against us. Close quote. This is a clear emphasis on the value of preparation, as is the if-then connection from verse 7, a connection to covenants and obedience. In verse 10, he gives another emphasis on obedience, and one that is repeated many times in the Book of Mormon. If the people obey the commandments, they will prosper in the land, or not be swept from the land. Even with these promises, Jerem tells us in verse 13 that they still suffered from wars, contentions, and dissensions. The people were blessed, protected, and successful in battle when they prepared, obeyed their covenants, and were unified. The greatest protections and success come in the performance and practice of all three elements. It is the collapse of all three that leads to Mosiah 1 having to flee the land of Nephi, and then the subsequent collapse of the Nephite civilization in that land. Another point is that the list of weapons is particularly important, and I will mention this multiple times over the following episodes. Each weapon serves a different purpose. Some are for penetrating, others for slashing, some for bludgeoning. Some kill up close, and some at significant distances. Part of what we are being told 
is that for the conflicts of the day, we need to have weapons of every kind. Not simply a single set of skills, but all of the skills possible to have to be best equipped for the conflict we face. Later, when Mormon writes about weapons of every kind, it is a shorthand way to direct us back to these lists initially given elsewhere. One important window provided on Nephite cultural evolution is the comments by Jacob about his brother Nephi that one of the reasons the people loved him was because of his role as a great protector. But Nephi never comments on his role as a warrior. Over the passing of the generations, the comments of later record keepers, like Omni and Abinadom, extol their personal efforts with the sword to defend their people, as if they are using this as a badge of honor, as stated in Omni chapter 1, verse 2, and verse 10. This shows the evolution from the man who argued with God about taking the life of a single man standing in the path of God's plan, to men who defend their character by emphasizing their role in taking human life. This is not to say that Omni and Abinadom are aberrations in the ancient world. The opposite is true. It is Nephi and his reluctance to take human life that makes him stand apart from his historical peers. A final comment is that the small plates of Nephi show us the first of three specific examples and five total examples of Antichrists in the Book of Mormon. In Jacob chapter 7 verses 1 through 21 we are given a story about an Antichrist named Sherem. It is interesting that this occurs relatively late in Jacob's life, and from the years given at the beginning of the chapter, that this occurred anywhere from 56 to 179 years after Lehi left Jerusalem. I expect it to be closer to the later years, as there would have been many generations born in the Promised Land, and numerous people would have been ignorant of the miracles that brought the first generation from Jerusalem to where they now lived, allowing Sherem to question Jacob's bona fides as a truth-teller about Christ. This topic of Antichrist is an important one, and it regularly plays a role in how conflict is portrayed. For this reason, I will have an entire episode on Antichrist and discuss their various teachings, actions, intents, characters, and the results of their activities in this part of the podcast. I will then refer forward or back to the episode as each Antichrist comes into the story. The next episode details the life and editorial focus of the primary editor of the Book of Mormon, the prophet, record keeper, and general Mormon. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.